You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Now, however broad-minded you may think you are, you are the prisoner of your culture. Not that you notice. The fretwork of tribal rituals and assumptions that surrounds you is as invisible to you as water is to a fish. So to truly understand your world, you need to step outside and see it as an anthropologist might view cultures in, say, Mindanao or Tajikistan. At least that's the argument made by today's guest, Jillian Tett, in her fascinating book, Anthrovision, A New Way to See Life and Business. Now, by profession, Jillian is a journalist, chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times. By education, she is a social anthropologist, a field in which she holds a Ph.D. from Cambridge. Her training has clearly not held her back as a journalist. Her previous book on the financial meltdown was a New York Times bestseller. Her 2012 article about Bernie Madoff was voted best feature by other business editors, and the newsletter she co-founded, FT Moral Money, was named last year's best newsletter. Are you impressed yet? Well, get ready. Welcome, Jillian. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Well, Jillian, where are you calling in from, Jillian? Um, I'm actually in Martha's Vineyard. It's the July the 4th um, holiday coming up. And although I'm British, I still know how to party and celebrate independence. So there we go. I might be outnumbered at the parties, but there we go. So I'm up for a few days to escape the heat in New York, where I normally live. Ah, well, that's good. And thank you for being a good sport about the 4th of July. Um, let's talk about the beginning of your career and kind of the beginning of the, the, well, the intellectual birth of this book. What was it that got you interested in, in anthropology in the first place? Well, the reason I wrote this book is because um, throughout my career as a journalist, and I've been in journalism now for 25 years for the Financial Times, writing about high finance, high business, high politics, all the things that really grown-up leaders do in the world. Um, when I met them, they would often ask me two questions. One is, how come you're so weird that you have this background in cultural anthropology, you don't have an MBA or a PhD in economics? Um, and secondly, they often say to me, oh, I've got a kid who says they want to study anthropology at college. I'd rather they go and did law. Will they ever go and get a job? So this book argues that, yes, you will get a job as an anthropologist. I did. I'm not alone. And there's a reason why, which is that anthropology is really powerful as a lens to see the world. Now, I stumbled into that really by accident. Um, I grew up in London in a really boring suburb, um, but to a family that had folk memories of World War II and the old British Empire and wanted to travel and have adventure from a young age. So they weren't very noble motives, but I thought, well, I can study anthropology and go and travel and explore the world. At the time, and we're talking really Thatcherite Britain, um, that was quite a common instinct of teenagers my own age. Um, you know, we'd grown up with relative stability and we thought, yes, we want to get out and backpack and explore. Um, I sometimes fear that's not the case in today's generation of teenagers, least of all after the pandemic. But that was really what drove me into anthropology, which is the same impetus that's driven generations of anthropologists, which is profound curiosity to get out, see the world, and try and understand what makes humans tick. And the one thing I'd say is that you might listen to that and think, well, that sounds like it's kind of Indiana Jones for academics. Um, you know, what anthropologists do is go off into wild, wacky parts of the world and look at fossils and bones and strange things. And that was how it was 150 years ago. But today, anthropologists study the 
exotic and strange that they find at the end of the road or in the corporate boardroom as much as the other side of the world. They're as likely to look at an Amazon warehouse as anything in the Amazon jungle. Uh, that's fascinating. And it sounds, the way you put it, Jillian, makes it sound like far less of a pivot uh, from anthropology to journalism. It seems almost like a natural step, was it? Well, in some ways it was. I mean, in my case, I did go off and do absolutely classic anthropology studies, which fit the stereotype. Um, and anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning the study of human, study of mankind and womankind. Um, and as I say, it started off very much the discipline devoted to studying the other that seemed exotic on the other side of the world. And in my case, I did literally go to the other side of the world to a place called Soviet Tajikistan, which um, is just north of Afghanistan. And I lived with a family up in a village, up in the high mountains for um, a, a year, really observing their life. And it was a very, very strange alien culture initially. Um, you know, I lived like a Tajik girl. I wore Tajik clothes. I spoke Tajik, slept on the floor with the kids, um, you know, chased after goats, the whole thing, but tried to get to grips with an alien culture. But then I came back and joined the Financial Times subsequently and in a sense flipped the lens and tried to use the same skill set I'd actually employed to look at the Tajik village back in the world of the city of London, um, European business at the time where I started, and then subsequently American business, American politics, and also the world of the media, which I'm now part of myself. What were those techniques of observation that you found could translate so well to media? Well, what defines anthropology is a belief that one way to understand the world, not the only world, let me stress, but one way is to try and behave like a Martian or child in a culture, to go somewhere and very quietly and patiently observe everything bottom up, to get a worm's eye view, not a bird's eye view, and to go into that situation and observe what's happening without preconceptions, um, and to try and look at the gap between what people say they do and what they actually do, the gap between rhetoric and reality, and to look at the way that people use symbols and rituals and language and their spatial patterns, um, the way they imagine their social group and talk about it, to look at all of those elements to try and understand this thing called culture. Now, culture is really hard to define. It's slippery. Um, it's like chasing, chasing soap in the bath to try and pin down what culture is. And it doesn't exist as a box. It's a spectrum. Um, and it's constantly changing. But broadly speaking, it's that pattern of shared cultural assumptions that defines a group. And it matters because these cultural assumptions have a really powerful impact on how we think and behave but often we can't see those cultural assumptions at all. We're very blind to them because of this problem that, as a Chinese proverb says, a fish can't see water. And you can't see water unless, as a fish, you jump out in someone else's fishbowl or go and ask other fish what they think about your fishbowl or try and move between fishbowls to actually see the water. So in a sense, what I was doing in Tajikistan was going to Tajikistan, trying to use that set of tools to look at Tajik culture and then jumping back into the fishbowl of Western business to try and understand the water that shapes how the media and the political world works. It sounds very abstract, but I can give you some examples of what I mean by that um, in a moment. 
Um, I, I'm all open. Let's let's hear some examples. Well, I'll give you one tiny example of what I mean by this. By you know, when I was in Tajikistan, I used a study of Tajik wedding rituals, um, which were big and elaborate, um, to try and understand how Tajik culture navigated the seeming contradictions between being both Islamic and being communist. Um, and looking at the patterns and the rituals gave a really rich insight into how these cultures navigated it, what kind of clash there was, or more specifically, what kind of clash there wasn't. Um, and I won't go into details because I suspect it's not of much interest to business um, watchers, but basically um, what I found by analysing Tajik wedding rituals was that much of the Western policy-making ideas about the Soviet Union at the time were kind of wrong. But when I became a journalist... Um, I then used it to look at the financial sector. And in 2005, I went down to study or went down to take part in one of the great lavish rituals of modern financial life called an investment banking conference. And if you said to a banker, well, actually, you're doing almost exactly what someone does in a Tajik wedding ritual at a conference, they'd kind of go, no, we're not. You know, we're not like tribal people. Uh -huh. In reality, they are. Because what wedding rituals do is pull together a scattered tribe, reaffirm those social ties, and re reflect and recreate through rituals a shared worldview. And in this particular conference I went to, called the European Securitization Forum, which took place down on the French Riviera, very classic investment banking conference, I sat there and sort of deconstructed the rituals and saw four key points. Firstly, that the, Tanchi, that, that the um, investment bankers doing securitization back in 2005, and it was 2005, were a very elite group set apart. Um, secondly, that they had a strong sense of their own identity and power because they spoke this language that no one else understood, um, not Tajik, but CDO speak, um, securitization speak. Thirdly, that they, like every group anywhere in the world, whether in an Amazon warehouse or Amazon jungle, had a strong creation myth, myth which divined and united them. Um, and this basically was all about the cult of what I call liquefaction, the idea that they had invented these amazing financial instruments to make free markets more liquid than ever before so that they could theoretically spread risk around make the system more resilient and give more people access to credit. Um, now, like any creation myth, that had huge contradictions and intellectual inc inconsistencies. You know, to cite a couple of examples, they said that spreading risk around would reduce risk. And in fact, it actually introduced more risk into the system because the ways of spreading it were so opaque. Um, they said that innovation would make every asset tradable and liquid. And in reality, um, the, the, um, the innovations they created, the products were so complex, they couldn't be traded. So they weren't actually free market prices. But they couldn't see that because they were basically a discrete tribe. And the fourth point was that when I looked at the PowerPoints that the bankers put up in relation to this craft, um, none of them had faces in them, even though they were claiming that this was all about serving people. And that was very telling because it showed that their mental map of finance had kind of taken the humans out of the end equation of what they were doing. Now, that all sounds like, okay, interesting observations, just what an anthropologist would look at. But when I went away and thought about those four different patterns, I realized just how dangerously the innovations were spinning out of control. 
And that then prompted me to go on and write a series of pieces warning of the chance of a major financial shock or, um, you know, things, basically a crisis occurring back in 2005. Mm. So my key point is thinking about culture, about the cultural signals that we send and what we don't talk about and the social silences in our environment can really help you to understand the risks that, that are developing in almost any sphere, not just finance. Um, that's fascinating. So you were three years ahead of the 2008 financial crisis, and it wasn't analyzing the uh, the, the risk profiles of the, all these different instruments. It was just observing the way that the people interacted in their blind spots. It was really, yeah, I and mean, I was ahead of the pack. Um, and it was really about looking at three things, culture, context, and consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and what I want to stress is that when I talk about using anthropological tools to try and understand a situation, I'm not saying that they the only tools to understand a situation or that they're a magic wand that always tells you what's going on, but rather they can be a really useful complement or checks and balance for other types of intellectual tools as well. So in the late 20th century, we created these amazing tools to navigate the world with, like economic models, like financial models. They, that's what drove the whole securitization boom, um, like corporate balance sheets, like big data sets. And all of those are really useful, but they also have a flaw, which is that if you don't use them with a set of sense of context and an awareness of the culture that created them, you can end up being led astray. And that's kind of what happened in the financial crisis because these bankers had these wonderful models of how these products were supposed to use, be used and work, but they couldn't see what was actually happening on the ground and the consequences of what they were doing. Um, there's a great scene in that movie, The Big Short, based on the book by Michael Lewis, which shows a hedge fund trader going down to Florida where they meet a pole dancer who's taken out a mortgage. And they're kind of shocked to discover that she's taken out five subprime mortgages and it's clearly has no hope of repaying them. And they realize that actually their whole premise about the subprime mortgage market is wrong. The models actually haven't failed to recognize what pe real life people are doing. And the thing that's shocking is that, um, not that this was happening, but that so few financiers before 2008 were actually getting that taste of real life or thinking about the cultural context of what their models were saying. So one of the things I often try to tell people is that if you go through life using these amazing tools like models, balance sheets, big data sets as a compass, you are danger of ending up like somebody who's walking through a wood at night with a compass um, and just looking down at it. If you do that, no matter how brilliant your compass is, you're probably going to walk into a tree. You've got to look up, look around, and get a sense of context, culture, consequences, lateral vision, not tunnel vision. And that's kind of what anthropology can do. Uh, elites were fooled by a number of things in the past five years. Um, you know, not having learned the lesson, perhaps, of the 2008 financial crisis, there was Brexit. There was the election of Donald Trump, and there was the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Could, uh, looking at the lead up or the signals that were sent out before those events through an anthropological lens, have given people more of a forewarning that these were coming? 
Well, I believe it absolutely could have done. And I should put my hands up at this point and say, I'm guilty too of being blinkered because um, trying to get a sense of anthrovision, of cultural awareness, is a bit like trying to conquer anger or get fit. You know, you can do it. Um, you can feel very proud of yourself for a while for having done it. But guess what? It's not a one-off thing that suddenly changes. It's a constant struggle throughout your life. And there's times when I've used the anthropology training to really understand things. And there are times as a journalist when I've just completely forgotten about it and, you know, made some really silly judgments. And, you know, I am part of the educated elite um, as a journalist. You know, I've had a very global life. Um, and, you know, that cost me, frankly, in 2016 with Brexit because I was living in America at the time. Um, when I look back at the UK as part of this elite, it seemed obvious to me at the time that Brexit was a bad idea, in my view. So I guess kind of assumed that everyone else would agree with me. It's what happens all the time. We all slip into this idea of assuming that everyone else thinks the way that we do, because we think the way that we think is natural and normal. Um, and then when Brexit vote happened, it was a really big wake up call for me about how I'd sort of you know, forgotten my one-on-one anthropology training. And actually after that, because I was running the editorial operations for the FT in America at the time, I thought, wow, you know, I got this totally wrong. Um, I was lazy. I need to try and rethink what I'm seeing in the US election. And so I spent a few weeks going out and trying very hard to think like an anthropologist, to simply listen and learn and watch everything. And that led me to decide really quite early on that there was a very good chance that Donald Trump would win, which wasn't a popular view amongst many journalists at the time. Um, but, you know, as it happened, turned out to be right, even though I should stress again, I got Brexit wrong. One of the things you you note in the book is that if you really wanted to understand Donald Trump and the success of his presidential run, you needed to visit professional wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the other ideas that anthropology um, has in its toolkit is the point that we don't just communicate verbally. Um, sight, smell, sounds, all the five senses are incredibly important for how groups of people create and share and reinforce worldviews and, you know, emit signals. And that's one reason why anthropologists believe it's often very powerful to actually go into the physical location and try and observe people and live like they are to do what's called participant observation to actually appreciate this. And it was actually a friend of mine who um, comes from a very non-elite background, very redneck, well, redneck sounds disparaging, I don't mean redneck, but very um, working class American background. He said to me during 2016, um, if you want to understand Donald Trump, you've got to go to a wrestling match. And I did. And I realized several things. Firstly, that wrestling is something that much of the educated elite, including journalists who are writing about Donald Trump at the time, weren't particularly tuned into because it's more of a working class um, mass sport in America. But it's also something that has been the main way that many American voters first got to know Donald Trump on the television screens not The Apprentice, which is what educated elites tend to think about, but through wrestling. Hmm. And when you go to a wrestling match, um, what you see is that actually the cultural patterns and the style of performance is very similar to the systems of communication that Donald Trump used in his political campaigns. It's very manufactured, loud, 
stage managed aggression um, with lots of name calling. I mean, the, the way that you know Little Mark Rubio and things like that um, were borrowed in politics by Donald Trump. That kind of style of speech comes directly from um, wrestling. Um, the fact that the audience knows that it's being whipped up into a frenzy and sort of knows it's for show and knows that they shouldn't take it too literally and yet at the same time is very sucked into this kind of group um, display, again, is very powerful. So looking at wrestling and then seeing how many of those elements had seeped into Donald Trump's style of campaigning showed me firstly that he was communicating in a way that people like myself were not well trained to understand at all. Um, in fact, many people who were in this educator elite didn't even realize that connection, myself included, um, because they didn't know about wrestling. But also to go back to that wonderful phrase from Selena Zito, the journalist, people were taking Donald Trump seriously, not but not literally. And of course, people trained like me were doing the other way around. Mm -hmm. I don't know, did you ever go to a wrestling match, Eric, or see those parallels? Uh, I think the last time I watched professional wrestling was on television and I was nine years old. Well, <laughs> I think you're actually like most journalists. I, yeah. I know very few journalists who've been to wrestling matches. And frankly, I wouldn't have gone either unless I happened to have a chance conversation. Um, and by the way, I just say that, you know, many of the stories in my life about having to, been forced to open my eyes have come about through serendipity mm -hmm. and seemingly chance encounters. And one of the great lessons for any business leader is to make yourself open always to colliding with the unexpected and seizing on those moments of serendipity, not just writing them out into a busy, you know, packed calendar, but actually saying, interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that. Let's yeah. go look. Um, that's fascinating. It's there also are... journalism as well, you know, but we, yeah. often, we often fail to live up to that, as I, as I often do as well. Well, uh, uh, journalism is sometimes guilty of top-down management. You, you know, the the morning news meeting, we, we decide what the news is going to be that day and rather than letting it unfold. And journalism is also guilty of its own tribalism and its own blinkered. And, um, you know, another story I tell in the book is how um, I was on the New York news desk in 2016 in the autumn when Donald Trump um, uttered the word bigly, big league, um, and all the journalists, myself included, instinctively laughed. And laughter is always very revealing. Um, it's always worth asking yourself when you laugh why you're laughing, mm -hmm. because you're usually laughing in a way that one defines a group, because you have to be inside a group to have shared cultural assumptions to get the joke. If you're outside the group, you just don't get it. Um, but secondly, jokes play off all the contradictions in our lives and the silences in our lives about culture that we don't want to acknowledge. And in this case, one of the unstated silences was that journalists and many educated elites assumed that it was kind of okay to assume, to say that, or think that having command of language, being educated gave you a right to be superior and to command power, and frankly, to be snobbish. And we had imbibed that assumption so unthinkingly that we just kind of laughed when someone broke that convention. And of course, many Americans felt differently. So in retrospect, that laughter was very telling about the shortcomings of journalists themselves. And I laughed too, I should say. Um, and it also raises another point that was at the key message of this book, which is that I gave a speech to a group of AI um, um, experts last week at a conference. Mm -hmm. And they told me that 
AI platforms, which are so dominant in our lives, are amazing in many ways because they can, you know, play chess and beat humans. They can scan financial markets. They can do medical analyses, or design bridges, you name it. Um, and they do that by hoovering up data and looking for correlations. There's one thing that no AI platform I was told has yet done, which is to create a good joke. Because big data sets that they collect, collect noise, not silence. And they can't always see the boundaries of social groups, the in-group and out-group. And big data sets can't always track the kind of contradictions and silences and bizarre twists of culture and the layers of a culture, um, which makes your jokes funny. So jokes are one of the things that define us as humans, not robots. Interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, speaking of silences and the unsaid, uh, uh, unspoken assumptions uh, of our culture today in 2021, are there things that worry you? Are there blind spots that you think uh, elites are failing to, to see, uh, to, to perceive threats once again? I think there are a lot of blind spots. Um, and if you'd asked me this question three years ago, I would have talked about actually epidemics and pandemics because mm. I wrote a column um, back two or three years ago and pointed out that the way we looked at um, the medical world um, and tended to discount what small groups of geeks were doing and the knowledge that they controlled um, was rather similar to finance. And, you know, people once again, the, the, you know, just as before 2008, the threats building in finance were hidden in plain sight in all the complex, geeky world. Um, so too, the threats in the world of with epidemics were also hidden with, in plain sight two or three years ago. And I should say the same pattern, by the way, held true on the tech sector in Silicon Valley um, back in 2010, 2011, where it was very clear that um, extraordinary things were happening in the world of ad tech that were being ignored or hidden in plain sight because they were also geeky and techy. Um, today, the type of social silences I would I want worry about are, firstly, AI, artificial intelligence. Um, I'm in the camp of those who think that AI is amazing. Um, I wouldn't want to chuck it all out at all, but it does worry me that knowledge about it um, and the development sits in a small, in the hands of a tiny pool of geeks um, who are scurrying around doing stuff that almost nobody else understands or has the appetite to peer into too deeply because it's wrapped up in this technical complex language with acronyms and equations and stuff. Um, and if you want to hide something in the modern world today, you don't need to use a James Bond plot. You just, um, you know, wrap it in acronyms and everyone looks away and thinks it's too boring and geeky and dull to worry about. But, you know, the idea of these um, people are taking decisions about AI, which can affect us all, but no one's looking at, mm -hmm. I think is one area of social silence. Um, another area of social silence is around debt and pensions. Um, this very slow moving potential crisis, which has been hidden in plain sight for years, but ignored for years because it seems so geeky and dull and boring. And, you know, the reality is that as long as interest rate, rates remain very low, it's fine. There won't be a crisis. If they rise, there'll be a crisis. Um, but we barely talk about that. And that's another area which, again, I would say people couldn't, should be paying a lot more attention. Um, when you think about, well, let's, let's imagine a world in which AnthroVision becomes 
standard practice or a standard way of looking at the at the business world um, in corporate boardrooms. How would things change? I think it would change for almost every professional group um, in terms of how they look at the world. I mean, to start with economists, um, they would be forced to look beyond the contours of their models. So economists have traditionally assumed that things that didn't go into their models were externalities, external to the model. So things like the environment were, or you know, ecological issues were outside many of the models. Mm-hmm. If economists had anthrovision, they'd have to put those factors into the model. They'd also have to develop a much wider sense of exchange beyond money. Because economists have tended to spend the last century assuming that money was everything. Um, and that activities that happened without money and open markets kind of somehow didn't count um, or didn't need to be tracked. Um, That was always a fallacy because of things like housework. But now it's a real fallacy because if you look at what's driving Silicon Valley, you have massive flows of exchanges um, which don't involve money, which are essentially data being swapped for services. Um, That's often described in terms of a negative, which is free, But that's kind of a misnomer. Um, I think people should actually talk about it in a positive word, which is barter. And I think that unless economists start noticing just how big and important this barter trade is, they can't really understand the economy. Um, And by the way, I don't think policymakers have any hope of creating um, a tech sector that feels more fair and ethical to consumers. If um, you had financiers embracing anthrovision and using anthropological tools, then they would have avoided many of the mistakes leading up to the 2008 crisis. They would have thought about the um, tribal patterns inside investment banks and how that made them blind to risks. And they would have thought about their lack of awareness of the consequences of what they were doing and how their creation mythology had lots of contradictions that didn't really make sense. If you had corporate CEOs with more anthrovision, they would probably be able to take a much wider view of their business and embrace stakeholder ideas that are becoming increasingly fashionable. And I do think, by the way, that the fact we're seeing a rise of sustainability and stakeholderism indicates that many people can sense that what I'm saying about anthrovision is correct. People need it. They don't articulate it that way, but they want to move from tunnel vision to lateral vision. If doctors had more anthrovision, they'd realize that you need to blend medical science and behavioral science. And we've seen that in the pandemic. You know, medical science alone cannot beat a pandemic. And many of the mistakes early on were all about failing to recognize that. Um, And by the way, that matters right now with the anti-vaccination campaigns and how you stop those. Um, Lawyers would realize that the cultural context of what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd say that anthrovision has a really wide application, mm-hmm. and particularly as we try and build back better now and think about how we're going to refashion work and business going forward. Are there practical steps that you would recommend that business leaders take to avoid tunnel vision and uh, make their vision more lateral? Well, the overarching framework of my book, which is partly based on my life, says recognize a need for a three-part intellectual journey. First, do what, what anthropologists call make the strange familiar. What, do what I did in Tajikistan. Try and embrace a tiny bit of culture shock to get into the minds and lives of people who seem different from you. 
experience a little bit of empathy for the other. And you don't have to go to Tajikistan to do that. You can do that in your next door department, in your company, down the end of the road. Try just immersing yourself with open eyes into someone else's lives and minds. Um, even just talking to someone in America from a different political party, shock. Um, and then try and use that experience to gain empathy from another point of view and then flip the lens and look back at yourself. Um, see how you look to others. Try and see the parts of your life you're ignoring and then actively try and think about social silences. What are the parts of the world that you're missing? And in practical steps, the kind of tricks you, you can use to do that means if you can't go and travel or immerse yourself in another culture, just try spending half a day somewhere different. Just try talking to someone different or even just try doing something which is so simple, which is when you go and talk to someone with a different mindset or different point of view, try to listen and try to ask questions like, so what do you think I should be asking you? Or is there anything I've not asked you that you'd like to tell me about or that I should have asked? Just try and actually seriously hand the microphone to somebody else and listen. Or try and go online and explore a different corner of cyberspace from whatever corner you have chosen through customization to embed yourself in. Um, try and talk to different people in your organization um, and try and listen to what they say. Try and look at the rituals and symbols um, of your life that shape your life and the use of spatial patterns. And think about not just all the stuff that you actually look at normally observe the noise in your life the eye-catching stuff but the silences the blank bits on the map and think about what that reveals um mm. you know think about the rhythms of your day in many ways the fact we've just gone through lockdown and are now hopefully going back into real life gives us a you know an extraordinary opportunity to do that because the shock of this is a bit like a miniature version of culture shock we've all been forced to look afresh at the rhythms and rituals that we used to take for granted and redefine those and also recreate and redefine our social ties. You know, who's going to be in our Zoom lockdown list or not? Who are we going to put into our pod or not? Mm -hmm. um, and that gives us an amazing opportunity to rethink things because one of the other messages from anthropology is that although we always think the way we do things is natural, normal and inevitable, it isn't. There's a huge range of ways to live. Um, and one of the tragedies of lockdown is that many of us have been locked down physically in a small space with a small social pod of people just like us because we're basically unable to travel. Um, and often when we go online, we choose to move into these cyber ghettos because we can customize information and identities and we can take our own tribal affiliations and patterns in the real world into cyberspace and intensify them. So one of the things we all have to think about as we come out of lockdown is how do we bust out of our own tiny self-imposed fish, fish bowls? How do we get out and travel, if not physically, then mentally and socially as well? Do you have a prediction about how the pandemic will change the workplace uh, in light of what you just said? Um, yes, yes, I worry that actually it has oddly enough, reinforced myopia. Um, I'm very struck by the fact that, to go back to where we started, when I was 17, 18, 19, you know, my, my friends and I couldn't wait to get out and travel and have adventure. And I've got teenagers, 
And that is not the dominant instinct of most of the kids I know right now. You know, they're not looking to, to go to the furthest college they possibly can find. They're not looking to go off and backpack. Partly, you know, they can't. There's a climate of fear, a risk aversion. I understand it. My generation was exceptionally blessed. But that does worry me. Um, and I do think that although there's lots of benefits, numerous benefits to not whizzing around the world through work, and I do think that curtailing business travel is going to be one long, longer-term consequence of the pandemic, um, as we curtail business travel, as people don't move as much, we lose the ability to collide with the unexpected. Um, in my case, I went to the Aspen Ideas Festival early, early this week because they decided to have part of it in real life. Mm -hmm. And it was part of me thought, oh, what a pain to have to go all the way over to Aspen. I mean, Aspen's beautiful. This is hardly a sort of hardship tour. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I thought, oh, do I really want to have to go through airports and all that kind of stuff? You know, why can't I just do the whole thing on Zoom? And, you know, turning up there, I bumped into three or four people who put ideas into my head that I had no idea about. And I spoke to people who had not been in my bubble in the last year, and that was fabulous. Obviously, we are going to be all contending when we go back to the office with how do we manage an office partly on Zoom, partly in real life. Um, that's going to create lots of questions about um, how you stop having a two-tier culture. Some really good things about being on Zoom, wider geographical spread, less travel. And I think in some ways, Zoom calls can be less hierarchical than in the real life in the office, because we're all equal on, in the face of a Zoom screen. We all have the same size. Mm -hmm. And so whereas you might get a dominant, often male, um, who controls a meeting in real life in an office, um, if you have a Zoom call and everyone's given a chance to speak, you can get a more equal conversation. Um, but the flip side is that, as we all know, Zoom calls can be great for small teams that already have high levels of trust and social capital. They're not good if you're trying to get people to bump into each other and swap ideas in an office. And they don't enable people to do what journalists call sense-making, which is navigate the world through non-verbal cues as groups and pick up all kinds of different ideas. So I think longer-term work is in a very interesting flux moment. And I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before, I hope we can retain some of the good parts of Zoom life, but it's a very early stage. But again, it's one of the reasons why right now, anthropology is incredibly important for making sense of this. You cannot work out how you're gonna run your business going forward just on the basis of a big data model, or even just on the basis of consumer polls or employee polls, because employee polls ask people directed questions um, they don't cover what you don't ask people. And that's often the most important thing. All right. Well, Jillian, we'll leave it there. Um, we'll find out and uh, we'll have to have you back on when we find out how the work, the future of work is affected by the pandemic. But in the meantime, let's wish us all uh, a lot of lateral vision and a lot of creative collisions, however we are able to pull them off. Thank Jillian, you. Thank you for being with us today. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom.